The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. How do you break the news to families that someone they love has suddenly died? How do you accompany them as they work through their pain? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Near-death experiencers are known to be unafraid of death, but sadly that is not the case for most people. The shock of the sudden death of a loved one is even crueler for family members and friends who need great support during the process of first hearing the news and then healing from the shock of their loss. Our guest today is Fran Whitney Nelson, a grief educator and sudden death trauma specialist who lives in Montpelier, Vermont. Fran has worked with the state police in notifying families concerning all types of sudden death situations from accidents to murders to suicides and has developed great skills in helping families recover from such tragedies. She is an expert as well in using animals such as horses to help children recover from grief situations. Fran, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you. Good morning, Lee. Good morning. How are things in Vermont? Uh, a little nippy for this time of year. <laughs> We've had a really interesting winter. How about you? The same thing in Maine. Well, for, Fran, as, as a hospital chaplain, I often face the same types of situations as you do. And in the hospital, of course, it's usually the doctors who tell families their loved one has died, but... Then the chaplains and the nurses are left to comfort those families and friends in their loss. And just this morning, I was called to help in the death of a two-month-old. And I thought of you, because <laughs> the show is coming up. And I, I wanted to ask, how do you handle such a situation? Well, it depends where the death occurs and where the notification takes place. When I was a civilian contract employee with the Vermont State Police for seven years, all I did was make death notifications, and it was in the field, meaning that we would be knocking on someone's door at two or three o'clock in the morning mm. to make a notification. I have made notifications in hospitals, but that's somewhat different because there is some anticipatory grief uh, in a hospital setting to a certain degree, but there is none when you make a notification in someone's home. Right. And after they've learned the news, uh, what do you do next? Well, the first thing I do when I arrive um, is I don't say we have bad news because what happens is that prematurely drives them into something that I have called the trauma membrane, and it makes it very hard to communicate with them. So I generally start out by saying that well, that's after the trooper makes sure we're in the right place and we're, yes. we're visiting the right family. And then I might say something on the order of, we're here about your son, John. And sometimes the person who answered the door will say, well, is he all right? And I would say, no, he's not all right. And they might say, is he alive? 
and I will say, no, he's not. But sometimes they don't ask if he's all right. Now, when I'm making a notification to an adult, I use very few transitional phrases because they know you're standing there in the middle of the night with a trooper, and they know you're not good news. And the longer you string it out, the more torturous it is for them. So I might say that we're here about your son, John, and if they just stand there, I would ask if we can come in. They say, no, why are you here? You can't get into a discussion with them if you want them inside. You mm-hmm. tell them as soon as you can. So I would, I would say John was killed this evening in a car crash. Now, I have... I've learned that there are three distinct stages to the reaction from a death notification. And the first one is what I call the eruption stage, which is totally involuntary. And people have run away from me, uh, from room to room in the house, screaming at the top of their lungs. Other people have fallen into me. Some, particularly males, have punched walls or thrown furniture. Some people have vomited. People have, very few stand there stunned. There's, when, with, when they get information like that, Lee, what happens is the brain emits a hormone called adrenocorticotropic hormone. And that's the foundation chemical for short-term and long-term and chemicals of grief and trauma and stress. The, re, the eruption stage is involuntary, and it's, it takes place from the time we had to run away from saber-toothed tigers. And it's either fight or flight, <clears throat> and it's instantaneous as soon as you tell someone this kind of news. And so this accounts for different kinds of, of reactions, and it's really important unless someone is you know, headed for the gun cabinet or running out into traffic, you don't interfere with their reaction. I've never, I've done this over 400 times, Lee, and I, I've never seen anybody head for the gun cabinet. A couple of people have tried to run out the door, um, but I've never seen it last longer than four minutes before it goes into another stage that I call the chaos stage. Mm-hmm. You have a question about that, or you want me to keep talking? Well, I was I was going to ask you at at uh, such a moment, would you try to put a hand on their shoulder, or or um, give them a hug, or anything like that, or do you just let them run free? You just let them go because what it is, it's out of control in a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen is, honestly, um, particularly in hospital settings, is people try to offer comfort at a time when that's not what is appropriate. They have to get through the eruption stage before you can offer anything like that. And some people try to curtail it by, you know, trap. I call it trapping them, like putting their arms around them and try to get them to to sit still. Uh, That's not appropriate and it's not helpful and, and it actually can make people very, very angry. So I, I feel it's best let it run its course. And mm-hmm. it, as I said, I've never seen it go longer than four minutes. And in 400 notifications, no one's ever hurt themselves. 
So that needs to, I believe, um, as I said, run its course, and then you get into the chaos stage. Okay, and now tell us about that stage. Well, it's very often when when people, they stand there and think, oh, they're overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. They They have to call people. They don't know where the phone book is. They want to call someone that they've talked to every day in their adult life, and they can't remember where they live. They can't remember their phone number. And that's where you can be most helpful is help them find the phone book. Ask if there are people you can call for them. Stay with them until people that they ask you to call to come be with them arrive. I've helped people get dressed in the middle of the night. They're shaking so bad they can barely stand up. That's when you can be the most helpful and, and in my opinion, offer the most comfort. Yes. Now, is there a stage F? I was going to say, is there a stage F? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what I've also done many, many times is it is in the the first thing they want to do is they want to see their beloved person. Now, if I've made a notification in the home, very often it's a crime scene and, and they can't get access to that. So... They have to wait for that, but I've driven many people to a funeral home to view their person. I've driven many people to hospital emergency departments mm-hmm. to see their to see their person. So there is a lot of help that you can offer. Now, the last stage is what I call the narcosis stage, not meaning to imply that people are taking narcotics, but that's when they act almost n- numb. And that's entering the trauma membrane, which is their best friend for the first few weeks and months after someone dies, a sudden unexpected death. Now, Fran, how did you get started in this calling? Oh, it it found me, I must say. <laughs> uh, um, I was flying from London to New York on British Airways in uh, the late 70s. And the reason I specify British Airways is because there were British publications on board. And I read an article about the Hospice of St. Christopher's in Sydenham, England, which is the first hospice in the world as we know them today. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard the word, but I can tell you as clearly as I know I'm talking to you, I had what's called a coup de foudre, which actually means a lightning bolt to the heart. And I knew someday, some way, somewhere, somehow, I was going to work with people who were dying and who were grieving. So I started a course of study on my own, but I didn't really do anything about it for several years. And... In 1987, I had been working as a manufacturer's rep in the South. I'm born and raised in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And my territory was Maryland, Washington, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. But I didn't, and I was making really good money. But I didn't want to do it anymore. And I was self-supporting. What I really wanted to do was I wanted to start a hospice, which generally means that people in your hospice have six months or less 
estimated six months or less to live. But I wanted it to be free. I just felt that I know organizations have to support themselves, but I just felt that I I, I had a tr- problem value system wise dealing with people having to write checks to people mm-hmm. who were helping them and their families deal with dying. I also knew that this was going to happen, that it would mean that I would be quitting my job to start this hospice and I would also be living on donations. And I didn't want to live on donations. So I fought this for about a year. And then one night I got into bed and I had a lot of trouble sleeping. And I just said out loud, God, I need you to help me make a decision. And when I woke up the next morning, I called my company in Georgia and my company in Massachusetts, and I told them I didn't want to do this anymore, and I gave my notice, and I hung up the phone, and I fainted. (laughs) No, I didn't really, but I had (laughs) I felt like I was going to. I had just quit a really lucrative job. (laughs) Fran, you don't you don't seem like the fainting type to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit of hyperbole to make a point, Lee. <laughs> so for five years, um, I had this free all volunteer hospice. But I I will tell you, when you're around people who are terminally ill, and I I was blessed or privileged to have hands-on experience with 542 dying people, you spend time in hospitals. Mm -hmm. And I noticed, particularly in emergency departments, no matter the manner of death, the personnel, the emergency department personnel, treated the grieving survivors exactly the same way when it was clear to me that the, the grief response was totally different depending on the manner of death. And I had been doing quite a bit of national lecturing, Lee, so I contacted some of the professionals that um, I had met on the lecture circuit, and they hooked me up with folks who were grieving uh, the death of someone they loved who had died, expected death, sudden death, and sudden unexpected death. And so I followed one uh, 1,696 grieving people for five years and realized that uh, I learned things that I'd never seen published anywhere before. And so that became my specialty, sudden unexpected death. So it, it, it kind of followed me and found me and grabbed me. So that's how I ended up in this professionally. Okay. And then I guess back in the 1990s, he started what was then the only state police sudden death trauma program for the Vermont State Police. Right. Was that their idea or your idea? Well, it was my idea because I knew from, from my lecturing nationally that most law enforcement agencies don't provide any training or much training for their law enforcement officers 
on how to make a death notification that doesn't make a terrible situation worse. And I can also tell you that I knew that law enforcement officers hate this more than anything else, is making death notifications. So I, by this time, had had experience making some going along with law enforcement, and so I approached the Commissioner of Public Safety in Vermont, um, called to make an appointment, and uh, the time schedule was going to be 45 minutes. Now, the timing was amazing because just a few weeks before, the commissioner's wife had had knee surgery and recuperating at home and through an embolism and died just like that. So he was very, very receptive to the discussion about possibly starting a sudden death trauma program with the Vermont State Police. And a 45-minute appointment turned into over three hours mm. just because of the timing of, <clears throat> excuse me, of his wife having died recently. Sure. Wow. Uh, I read an article that you use uh, animals, particularly horses, in helping children heal from um, situations that, like we've been talking about. How did you get into that, and how does it work? Well, I, excuse me, I, I have miniature horses, and I have sheep and goats and miniature donkeys, and I have rescue dogs, so it's not just horses, but the beginning of this program is thanks to a beautiful, formerly abused horse named Casey. I was lecturing to a medical personnel of a hospital in another state, and I just happened to be talking about suicide. And a, a woman in the audience literally jumped up out of her seat and ran out of the room. And after my lecture was over and after folks had finished asking me questions, um, I went outside and she's waiting for me. And one month before, her grown daughter, who was married and had one child, her grown daughter was her own was this woman's only child as well. Had jumped into the bathtub and um, slit her throat, and she did this just as her husband is. Open. She was mentally ill. Mm-hmm. She was. She did this just as her husband was um, opening the bathroom door, and he's lifting her out, and she has just done this, so she's still alive, and she. She stabbed herself in the throat, and her little daughter, who was standing outside the door, which was now open, saw this. And what happened was this little girl stopped talking. She had not talked for one month. So this lady asked if I could possibly help her, and I said I would try. 
so I went to the house a few times to chat with this little girl, and I never asked her anything that couldn't be answered by her either nodding or shaking her head, yes or no. And then I asked her one day if she liked horses, and she nodded that she did, and I said, I had a horse named Casey who had been abused when he was a young guy, and that he'd been very scared and very sad, and that I had given him a home, and would she like to go visit Casey? And I said, I used the word scared and sad specifically because of what had happened to her mom, but I didn't say anything about her mom. Mm -hmm. So the first visit, excuse me, Casey was very, very tall horse. So the first visit, she actually, I I showed her how to groom his legs because she couldn't reach anything else on him. And she had a good time doing that. And then her grandmother brought her down again, and I showed her how to give Casey carrots to make her hand flat like a table so he wouldn't mix up fingers and carrots. And then the third time, I rode him before she got there, and then I asked her if she would like to get on the saddle in front of me and take a little walk, and she nodded that she would like to. And then the next visit, I led her around while she sat in the saddle by herself, and then put him in cross ties and asked her uh, if she'd like to groom him. We had a little stool now so she could reach almost reaches back. And then I asked her if she would like to say goodbye to Casey by herself and give him a carrot by herself. And she nodded that she would. And I gave her the carrot, and then I went around a a nearby corner. And I heard crunching, so I knew she had given Casey the carrot. Mm -hmm. And then... This still moves me. I heard her whisper, Casey, I love you. Oh. And I I almost was doubting that's what she really said. <laughs> and so uh, I came out from the corner and... Um, I confirmed that she had said to Casey that she loved him, and I said, I bet that made Casey feel very, very good. I didn't want to make a big thing out of this because I didn't want to alarm her. Sure. Um, and and so um, I told her that if she felt like it later, maybe she could tell her grandmother, but she didn't really have to. She didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And uh, But she she did start to talk because... She just fell in love with this horse, and she trusted him then, by then, and she felt safe with him. And it, 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 it's, a, it's a lesson in the power of love um, with children and animals. And Casey was a really big guy, but I used a lot of miniature. All my horses, now Casey, I, I had him for 22 years, and he died three years ago. I have miniature horses now. And I have miniature donkeys, and I have little goats, 
and I have a sheep named Blueberry Muffin who thinks she's a miniature horse. And <laughs> <laughs> she really does. <laughs> she won't eat cheap food. She eats horse meat. She lives with a horse. <laughs> so what happens is um, <clears throat> I have a, a minivan, and I have one particular donkey named Mr. Higgins, and I have a particular little horse um, whose formal name is Legacy Hills Maple Cream, and I call him Austin. And <laughs> when there's a grieving child, we go to the home. Um, he's been in hospitals. He has been in funeral homes. He's been in schools where there are grieving children. And there's something about having a little critter like Mr. Higgins and Austin, that children, one, feel safe, but it's also astonishing to a child when you walk into a classroom, like say say a student has died, Mm. and the whole elementary school is all the students, and the teachers actually are grieving, and this woman comes in with a horse who's smaller than some people's dogs. I have a Great Dane, and, and... Six of my horses are smaller than my dog. So um, (laughs) it gives them, not to make them feel less sad, but it gives them also a special memory and also lets them know that there is some, they can still laugh in spite of being as sad as they were. The pet therapy dog program in our hospital is a wonderful thing. And I, I started a blessing of the pet therapy dogs program. Each October we do a, a blessing of them because they're, they are such a gift to the hospital and to the patients. Yes, I, and also to, to the people who do it. They're my yes. animals. They're a gift to me. Uh, you know, when I come home, from a really bad, bad call. I mean, I don't know how graphic you want me to get, but, you know, some really bad calls. So, you know, little kids that are in crashes and you're looking at a child that has no head. Um, mm. I want to be with my animals, you know? So they're therapy for me, too. Um, they perform an incredible service, and I am so blessed and so privileged to be able to have them. And many of them are rescues, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have, I have a miniature pincher who weighs, she's a, these dogs now, who weighs five pounds. I have a little rescue, and I have a rescue puggy who weighs 16, and I have a rescue Great Dane. Um, she weighs over 125 pounds, and they all sleep sleep with me (laughs) under the covers mind you (laughs) it's marvelous until the great until the great dame wants to change position and then the bed clothes rise up four feet in the air but other than that so animals are are very very wonderful for lots of things they certainly are do you do find that faith makes a difference religious faith makes a difference in people's reactions to bad news it very often does. Um, there are some people who hmm, who have the faith that they're going to see their person again can 
not make it less sad, but um, I, perhaps gives them more understanding or belief uh, and helps them through that they mm-hmm. will see their person again. But I, I can tell you, I have also seen people who had great faith who, for a while, lost it um, just because perhaps of the circumstances of their person's death. But I will tell you, I, I know a woman who had, let's see, three sons and one daughter. One son died when he was 19. He was asphyxiated accidentally uh, in his car that he backed up in the, into a snowbank and had the engine running to stay warm. Mm-hmm. And it plugged up you know, the exhaust pipe and he died. And then another one of her sons in his early 30s died of an aneurysm. So two out of three of her sons were dead prematurely. And she presided at the funeral of both of her sons with incredible sense of, of peace and, and love. So, yes, I do find that it does help people get through it. Fran, we're just about out of time, but I'm sure oh there are a, a, lot, a lot of listeners out there who would uh, like to uh, find out more. Is, is there a way they can get in touch with you and what you do? Yes. The best way to reach me, Lee, is via email. And okay. it's Casey's real name was Legacy, another Legacy. So my program is Legacy Hill Animal Therapy for Grieving Children in Honor of Him. And my email is Legacy Hill at P Shift. Legacy Hill, one phrase. Mm-hmm. And P Shift, which is short for Power Shift. Legacy Hill at P Shift.com. Great. Fran, thank you so much for being with us. I'm sorry we are out of time. But, <laughs> time uh, flew, didn't it? <laughs> it, cer- it certainly did. I'd like to thank our guest, Fran Whitney Nelson, for a fascinating discussion about, about what she does. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any other of our programs, please feel free to visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, please check that website at iands.org. There will be information on that site about our upcoming Labor Day weekend conference on NDE's Health and Healing in Newport Beach, California, from August 28th to 31st. So save those dates, and thanks for listening. <laughs>